Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. Tom, good morning. Hello, uh, Ronnie. A dull, overcast day here in the city. I don't know what it's like out in balmy Barna, but... Well, um, the sun is shining, of course. <laughs> Need you even ask? <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear it. It's it's just we've lost all that lovely weather we had here. It's what I call Swiss weather, clear blue skies, but very cold. It was really a, a lovely, lovely introduction to spring. Indeed. But, um, yeah. yeah. So, Tom, here we are again. What have you got in store for us this week? Well, I am talking about a kind of a revolution there was in retailing in Galway in the 1950s. Right. <clears throat> People weren't quite sure what was happening when they began to demolish the old Royal Hotel in Air Square right. in 1951-52. And then the rumour went around that Woolworths was coming to Galway, the yes. chain store Woolworths. Yes, This yes. did not produce a lot of great enthusiasm <clears throat> excuse me, within the corporation, within a number of councillors in the corporation, are indeed with some retailers in Galway who were very resistant to any kind of change at all. But anyway, uh, the when the uh, advertisement went up for applications for people to work there, over 500 girls answered the advertisement for staff. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's brilliant. You of, the queue of applicants was 100 yards long. <clears throat> Many of them had to wait all day to do an interview and so on. Uh, Woolworths officials were completely taken aback by this enormous response. Anyway, they initially employed about 50 people. Right. Now, I don't know if you remember the shop running, but it was very big, first of yeah. all. And the other big impact straight away on was how bright it was. There seemed to be an awful lot of light or lighting, and uh, it was very bright and big anyway. Tom, I remember as well. Yeah. 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 It was an open plan. Yes. Uh, the counters yeah. were arranged in a kind of series of squares. Yeah. And uh, they were a little bit higher than your average counter. Uh, but the tops of them were uh, <clears throat> all out on display, open display were the wares that they had, the various goods, etc., that they had to stay for sale. Now, down towards the back, which was a bit wider, the shop was L-shaped. It, nice. As you went towards the back, it got wider and on the right-hand side. In fact, there was this, an exit there that could bring you down to beside the Savoy. Uh, it was an old right-of-way, I think, from many, many years before that. Anyway. Nice. Back at the back, uh, they sold drapery and kitchenware and household goods. Woolworths, for those who don't know it, was probably the first pound shop to come to Galway. <laughs> it wasn't exactly a pound shop. No. Everything was very cheap. Everything yeah. was on open display. Uh, 
<clears throat> anyway, there was drapery, etc. There was a hardware section there. And the unusual thing about the hardware, which I remember vividly, is quite a number of the tools and things for sale were wrapped in plastic, <clears throat> which you never saw anywhere else at the no. time. Uh, there was a garden section along the left-hand wall, all kinds of shrubs and pots and seeds and things for sale. Uh, one of the most important things for teenagers in at the time was just around the corner uh, on the right, there was one of these photographic booths. Now, there's plenty yes. of them around now. Yes, I know. Uh, where you could sit in yeah. and for your half dollar, you could get four <laughs> kind of uh, passport size photographs. Yeah, yeah. And because there was a curtain uh, on this, <laughs> you could pull the curtain and you could act the ages when uh, your <laughs> photograph was being taken. I remember. Now, this was the first one of its type in Galway. And so, of course, it was a huge attraction, especially for teenagers wanting to act the ages and impress their fellow, etc., etc. Anyway. But you could buy almost anything in Woolworths. There yeah. was uh, stationery, there were cigarettes, lighters. Uh, they, you know, there was a whole lot of different things. It was known, by the way, as Woolies. <laughs> that, that was the way people in Galway knew this place, Woolies. Um, <clears throat> but the first thing, really, that you noticed walking in the door was the wonderful smells and aroma I was of just all thinking of those that. sweets. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. they were laid out in front of you. Yeah. Were, believe me, full of temptation. <laughs> Not just because of the look of them yeah. and the smells of them, but because they were accessible as well. And if nobody was looking, could you, would you, should you <laughs> grab one or two and run like hell? They were like forbidden fruit, low-hanging forbidden fruit. Yeah. Yeah. And when I think of it, it was almost cruel. <laughs> on young people walking in there uh, at the time. Yeah. But, you know, and then there was also a machine near the door uh, which made the most beautiful ice cream cones. Yeah. Which could be topped up with chocolates and things. And <clears throat> the other, which was very unusual at the time for Galway, there was a machine where they roasted peanuts. Yeah. Another very tempting smell and aroma to add to the rich kind of atmosphere <laughs> of, yeah. of the place. Tom, I'm laughing oh. because I remember exactly that. The smell when you went in the door was so exciting. And uh, the open plan of the shop, you had it spreading out in front of you. And uh, it was just a revolution, really. There was no other shop like it in Galway. No, um, there wasn't. There it, wasn't. And it, it changed really things forever, really. Yeah, of course. You know, it, uh, yeah. I think... <clears throat> like it was probably the forerunner of the first supermarket in Galway, which yes. was, of course, GTM, That's right. George Tuttle Merchants, which was across the street from O'Gorman's. That's right. And, uh, and which was low priced things. And they had, had innovations as well. I remember <clears throat> having cooked chickens for sale. That was a kind of a revolutionary thing when they yeah. started. Anyway, Woolworth certainly led. Now, the funny thing is, uh, the original criticisms, etc., and objections to Woolworths vanished very quickly because <laughs> it attracted enormous crowds to the area. Yeah. And, uh, um, and people who came to town just came often, especially just to go in to Woolworths <laughs> to experience this new kind of 
type of shopping. Yeah. The girls seem to be all gorgeous, is my memory. I remember the girls selling the sweets were all dressed in white uniforms. Right. Um, they were kind of like nurses almost. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, it, it ran very successfully, uh, but eventually it, well, it was a decision made by the Woolworths chain in the end that yeah. they would close all their branches in Ireland, even whether they were doing well or not, and uh, consolidate their efforts elsewhere. And so it closed in uh, the 1980s, I think it was. And uh, it's where Supermax is today. That's the, the actual location. Yeah. But anyway, it was... Um, quite a revolution. It also became a teenage haunt in yes. Galway. Certainly in the couple of hours after school every day, it was a place where a lot of teenagers congregated and gathered. And uh, it, it's, I think people will remember it as a fun place. Yes. You know, uh, really. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, it, it lasted for quite a long time it and did. it certainly yeah, changed retailing yeah. in Galway. It was it was a lovely open plan shop, as you say. I think it was an American idea. I think Woolworths originally was an American concept of you know just opening up a shop, and making it everything accessible, good friendly staff, and uh, yeah. yeah, I just all the smells you describe I remember so well. I do remember. I do remember discussing some time with some members of the Chamber of Commerce about new shops coming to town. And somebody said, I remember when we all objected to Woolworths coming because yeah, they did. They did. Yeah, exactly. Shopkeepers yeah. feared it would be the end of their trade. Yeah. And uh, yeah. how Woolworths often have was we heard that cry, Tom, you know. Well, indeed. Yeah. I yeah. mean, our parents always taught us never be afraid of change. That's never. true. But it's funny. Uh, I, a different slant on Woolworths <clears throat> I heard many, many years later. And there was a gang of us in a pub in Salt Hill and a friend of ours came in and he had just been on holiday in America. Now, that was a very rare thing in those days. <laughs> and there were all kinds of questions. Yeah, are are taxis all yellow and what's oh. a hot dog like and blah, blah, blah. And at some stage, he let slip that he had been in the house of some Hollywood hunk. I can't remember who this actor was, but all the women in the company were going, oh my God, oh, give me a half an hour and all this, blah, 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 you see. And then somebody said, what was the house like? Do you know, he said, I never realized you could spend a million dollars in Woolworths before. <laughs> and that knocked the reputation of the hunk right <laughs> flat on the ground. You know? uh, but I don't remember Woolworths as that place, even though that's what it was, essentially, yeah, yeah. a kind of a pound shop. Yeah. It's really but it had the magic. It had the magic about it. Yeah, I know, yeah. Yes, because sh shops were quite formal up to then. And, uh, you know... And dark, dark interiors. Counters you know. and people served behind the counter and they served you in front of the counter. And you, you, you've talked about that before. But uh, this was really open plan and very inviting and totally customer friendly. And anyway, yes, the, objection, absolutely. the objections, as you rightly said, to, that Woolworths was going to ruin the trade of the town. Actually, as you said, it soon dried up the objections because it brought huge crowds into the town. And sure, yes. if you're in at Woolworths, you might as well go down and have a look in 
uh, the Cambridges or look in Leidens or something else, you know. So yes. that was the and whole some of those councillors who had businesses yeah. in the vicinity. <laughs> I know their business mean. improving. I, I know who you mean. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. It's so funny. But but I often hear that cry if there's a, a talk of pedestrianizing a street in Galway. Oh, the traders are out saying that's it now. The trade will be ruined and they object to it. And unfortunately, a lot of these customer friendly, shopper friendly ideas get shelved because of people imagining that their trade will be ruined. Yeah. In fact, the exact. Exactly. Opposite happens time and time again. And pedestrianization mm-hmm. is the best thing that ever happened to Galway. In fact, we could do with more of it, really, because it's so beneficial to the town and for our health. It's wonderful. But, Tom, yeah. I love that reminiscence there of Woolworths. It's, it's, ah, well, it's nostalgia, yeah. really. And it's only, of course, for those of us growing up in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, I mean, others won't know what we're talking about, but, <laughs> but that's part of the fun to look back on it as well. It is indeed. It, I can still see the sign there, Woolworths, you know, the wonderful name. Yeah. It's great. Tom, that's just excellent fun. Now, I love that. And I love the way you, you know, reminded us of the smell when you went in the door and things like that. And it's just so lovely. Tom, that's great. Now, well, I, I, what I'm writing about this week was still on about Joyce because that's what happens to me now. I get stuck into something and I go wild really with my reading and there's so much to read and download. There's too much, too much. The trouble is about Joyce, the industry is too fantastic, too large. It's ridiculous sometimes. It's worldwide. So you have to try and close it down as much as possible. And I'm picking up the story I'm moving ahead now to the 1930s. I was did the 1920s, more or less, last week. 1930s now. And then towards the end of 1930s, because the great shadow coming over Europe was of war. But in the closing months of uh, 1938, Joyce wrote The Close of Finnegan's Wake. This was his last and penultimate book, novel, I suppose. And he was so exhausted, Tom, that he went outside and Nora could see him. And he sat for a long time on a street bench, unable to move. But yet, rarely for Joyce, he was satisfied. These were the last pages he was ever to write. And they were probably among his greatest. Now, I must say, uh, Finnegan's Wake is, is, is just beyond my reach. But I do enjoy it. I, I do enjoy it when someone reads <coughs> part of it aloud. Then I hear all the resonances and the play on words. I hear that, but I'm unable to do it myself. But that's okay. It doesn't matter. Uh, the genius of, of, of Finnegan's Wake really was a slow burner. Critics did find the language difficult. It wasn't like when he launched Ulysses. You know, there was unanimous, practically unanimous praise. Um, There was a little more caution when Finnegan's Wake came out. Um, uh, But but Joyce was still a sensation. And for the second time, imagine, uh, that summer in May 1939, Time magazine put Joyce on their front cover. I mean, most unusual to be there twice, but he was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, one English quote that I have, an English critic, a fellow called Geoffrey Grierson, who was writing in the British Picture Post, he judged the book, quote, an Irish stew with passages of real beauty. 
And he goes on, and its new language is basically English, but mixed up with everything from Irish to Icelandic. <laughs> and as if to yeah. justify Joyce's self-indulgence in inventing his own language, which is virtually what Joyce does, Grierson said that Joyce had become the king of Paris, worshipped by writers as painters worshipped Picasso. Adulation, Grigson implied, had not done Joyce any good. Well, that was a, probably a bit mean-spirited. In fact, you know, the, Joyce was just sure he might have been the king of Paris in literature. But we just mustn't forget that, in fact, he and Nora led, in other ways, quite an ordinary life. They... Um, they spoke Italian, of course, all the time. Italian was the language of whom learned for 10 years in Trieste. Um, you know, they shopped, they went out to restaurants. If there was an international match and Irish was playing, it's quite possible that the captain of the team might get an invitation to call around to Joyce. And of course, they'd love to do so. It was an open house to a lot of Irish people. You had to write and ask if it was permissible. And Joyce was calm, charming and hospitable. So that, just not to forget that side of Joyce and Nora, which I often do because he's such a giant. But <clears throat> one thing that poor Joyce was really shaken by were the accusations made by Nora and others that the constant shift from country to country, from language to language, and the continual rupture of ties with friends and relatives, because he was always arguing and fighting, created textbook conditions for a confused identity. And there's no way that that confused identity hit harder than their daughter, Lucia. Now, Joyce and Nora were wrapped up with each other. Giorgio had made, always made friends effortlessly, and he was scooped up early, as I said last week, by Helen. Nothing came easily to Lucia. Uh, uh, friends, career, her dancing career came to nothing. And uh, she didn't behave with lovers very, very well. So the, she just wasn't making a mark like, you know, people expected such celebrity, a daughter of such celebrities to do so. Now, I've just touched for a moment that Joyce's, Joyce had changed now. Instead of his bohemian friends, on the sort of the, the left bank. He now was surrounded by people that were more in psych with what he was, um, what he needed really. And yeah. an extraordinary uh, person that, that should come forward was a man called Paul Leon. Paul Leon, now I don't like to go into all Joyce's friends because there were so many. Uh, if they weren't friends, they were admirers. If they were admirers, they were scholars and academics listening and being interested in what Joyce had to say. But Paul Leon was a wealthy Russian Jewish emigre, a lawyer, philosopher and sociologist. And he fled with his wife, Lucy, to Paris in 1918. And he now gave Joyce his undivided attention. And this often happens to brilliant people. They're very fortunate, you know. They do attract people that devote themselves to them and help them. Very often it's a poor wife if, the, if the, the artist is a man. You don't often hear of a devoted husband to a, a woman artist. I'm sure it exists, but you don't often hear it. It's usually the other way around. Anyway, this was a time of Joyce's great greatness and uh, Leon was brilliant. Uh, Joyce used to call to his apartment practically every day when he was writing uh, Finnegan's Wake. But 
to show you the devotion of Leon, he, he spoke to his wife's brother. Now, his wife was also Russian and uh, uh, proposed that his wife's brother, Alex, should marry Lucia. I mean, this is extraordinary because he was he felt, uh, you know, uh, that James was so upset about Lucia. Maybe marriage is, is what Lucia needed. And he genuinely made this proposal. Alex met Lucia and agreed that he would marry her. He also admired Joyce hugely. He felt, yes, I will marry her as kind of a, he felt it was his destiny. But of course, it was absolutely ludicrous. It didn't happen. But later, Joyce's sister, Eileen, who had spent some time in, in Trieste, Trieste with the Joyce family, she now had two daughters. She offered to keep Lucia for a while at their home in Bray County, Dublin. So, so believing that a complete change of surroundings would be just the thing, Nora brought Lucia on a shopping spree and sent her to Ireland with two trunks of Paris fashions. But after two months, poor Lucia, you know, her behavior changed from bizarre to dangerous. She wandered away. She meandered through Dublin, once walked into Trinity College, offering to make a present of Joyce's letters. She slept in a college park until eventually she was picked up by the police. Nora's uncle, Michael Healy, eventually found her and with the help of relatives, found a nursing home to take care of her. Now, this was interesting because Lucia was relieved to be looked after at last. She became less agitated, Tom, and she wrote yeah. a loving letter to Nora. She seemed for the first time in her life to be somewhat settled in this home in Dublin. Joyce said, this is what you must do. Find a, a quiet, peaceful place for her. But Joyce believed all the time that... Lucia could be cured and he kept he would not commit her to any asylum or any clinic he wouldn't sign those documents but he kept bringing her back and bringing her to expert after expert even as I said before to Carl Jung and doing all that he could to try and cure her schizophrenia which of course sadly is uncurable. Now this is an extraordinary twist of the tale Tom because Tragedy, if you like, in the form of madness, actually struck the family for a second time when Helen, Helen Fleischmann, who married Giorgio's wife and was the mother of Stephen, became a patient in a mental clinic in Montreux. She had a total, massive mental breakdown. She suffered from deep depression. Anyway, the marriage was floundering for some time. Giorgio was drinking heavily and women chasing the joy stars, I've said before, or at his beck and call. And all this was happening against the background of the Second World War, which was looming. German tanks, 1939, September 39, had rolled into Poland. Two days later, England and France declared war on Germany. And as Paris was likely to be bombed, American and European expatriates were pouring out of the city, heading for home or to the south of France. Germany troops then, 1940, you know, began to infiltrate into the northern European countries. The British army fled from Dunkirk. Um, Helen's family, this is interesting, Helen's family, uh, very, very wealthy family, uh, you know, um, petitioned that at once 
that Helen should come back to America, but she was really too ill to move. But her brother, Robert Castro, don't forget a very wealthy family. He arrived in Paris with two nurses and two doctors. And they took Helen with them down to uh, Switzerland, where they got uh, into Northern Italy, where they got a liner back to America. But Joyce's two were on the move. James and Nora, Giorgio and Stephen took up residence in a small village uh, inside the French Vichy collaborationist area. And Joyce then began to make torturous negotiations with the German and French governments to allow his family to leave France for Switzerland. Lucia was in a clinic in, um, in Brittany, uh, in, and that was unfortunately the occupied part of France. And at the last moment, the German authorities, although they agreed the Joyce family could go, they would, would not give permission for Lucia to leave the clinic she was in. And you can imagine if the Joyce's knew what the Germans were doing to people in clinics and mental asylums, they would be extremely worried. But they, they <coughs> caught that on. What they thought was, well, look, let us go to Zurich. We'll use every influence we can for uh, Lucia to, to follow us. Now, they did that. And... Uh, and uh, on December the 16th, 1940, the Joyce's left France clutching documents, suitcases and Stephen's bicycle. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll pick up where they, they did, uh, how they got on in Switzerland. Not that Joyce lived for very long after their arrival. No, they didn't. Just, no. just to finish about Paul Leon, he was not so fortunate. Um, Joyce was worried Leon and his wife came down to see them when they were staying in that village about 200 miles south of Paris. And Joyce was worried about their private letters and documents that left in their apartment in Paris. And Leon and his wife said, look, we're returning to Paris. Our son is about to take his baccalaureate examination. Um, we'll go back. I'll go into your apartment and see what I can do. So he went around to Joyce's place and, of course, Joyce had forgotten to give him a key, but luckily he found a window open. He climbed into the window. He gathered all the documents that he could, and very wisely, he brought them to the Irish legation in the Place Vendôme, giving them to the Irish consul, Count Gerald O'Kelly, with two stipulations. They were, if he was to die, the papers were to go to Joyce. But if both men were to die, the papers were to go to the National Library in Ireland and not to be opened because of their sensitive content until 50 years after Joyce's death. Now, as a Jew, poor Leon knew his time in Paris was dangerous. He remained at his apartment while his son was finishing his exam. And Tom, this is just dreadful. That parental gesture, so generous of this man, Leon, so generous to Joyce, so generous to his family, so generous to everybody else, but that parental gesture Staying with his son cost him his life. The Gestapo came, they took him away. He was taken to a camp, which turned out to be a staging post for onward transportation. In 1942, he was actually sent to Auschwitz. And as he was being marched with some other prisoners, Leon was ordered, step out of line, and a guard shot him dead. And an appalling end to a devoted man. And yes. uh, I have a very good photograph, I'm glad to say, that I found in the files of James Joyce with Paul Leon. 
Um, he was a brilliant man. He spoke seven languages fluently. So imagine how helpful he was to Joyce with um, Finnegan's Wake. You know, when Joyce was trying out words, you can imagine Leon, you know, exploring yes, words with him, exploring, <coughs> exploring sounds, resonances, all these things that matter to Joyce. But I'm just going to leave it there uh, on that train journey from France to Switzerland, and I'll finish it next week. But um, it's there's been a lot about Joyce lately, Tom. Um, you know, yeah. uh, Nuala's book has got a lot of publicity. Uh, it was on the um, the Sunday program there last Sunday. It was very well. She gave brilliant interview. And I told you there was a little uh, performance in the collegiate church there on Friday night. Yes. Nuala was there talking about her book. Uh, it was really excellent. Excellent. So yeah. Joyce is very much there at the moment, you know, very much. Yeah, there. well, it is the centenary of Ulysses, the publication. All of that. All of that. Yeah. Extraordinary. Yeah. All of that. Yeah. Well, Tom, will we leave it at that? Okay. Right. right day until next week. You bet. And take care, Tom. Nice to talk, as always. God bless. Bye, Tom.